for the Indians. One run on, let's see, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. You can't say goddamn on the air. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. From the Gateway Lounge in Sioux Falls, it's Nobody's Listening Anyway. Here are your hosts, John Gaskins and Matt Zimmer. Ah, uh, like a punch in the nards from Noah Friedel. Like a Dan <laughs> Bailey kick sailing further and further and further away from the goalposts. And like... Ben Lieber taking a shirtless shower. Of course, we all take shirtless showers uh, on a commercial. Uh, wow, we have a we have a Christmas come early. Nobody's listening anyway today. Oh, and like hell freezing over when it comes to the St. Paul Saints and the Minnesota Twins all of a sudden together in lockstep. Uh, early Christmas gifts for Matt Zimmer and I today. I mean, it's just like this is what sports talk or sports podcasts were made for, Zim. Good afternoon. Hey, John. Yeah. Uh, we've, we <laughs> Ben Lieber's going to join us later on. Uh, he's with the Minnesota Vikings Radio Network, and uh, he, of course, was a Vikings linebacker, and he's a South Dakota Sports Hall of Famer. And we're going to ask him about the, the Dan Bailey culpability for the Vikings loss in Tampa, which puts a big dent in Minnesota's playoff hopes. Uh, so I'll start with this, uh, because we got gifts from the Sports Talk gods with uh, Friedel, and we're going to start with that. The Jackson Yotes, I mean, that's enough right there. And then we get the the punch in the nards to Stanley Amude, and uh, kind of the, the latest chapter in that uh, spicy rivalry. But uh, I'll start giving a gift to you and anybody else who follows me on Twitter in the spirit of, you know, maybe those who should be setting a prime example for the rest of us and how we should live like our outgoing president. Uh, I'll admit I was wrong. Uh, I will admit defeat. Dan Bailey was by far, okay, not by far, but was the biggest reason the Vikings lost on Sunday. But I am going to give it, it's, it's kind of, it's halfway there. I, don't, I still don't think they would have won if we would have had all those Dan Bailey problems. Is that fair? No, that they that if if ever there's been a game where a guy single handedly lost his team the game, that was it. <laughs> okay. Um I mean he I realize ten points doesn't account for the difference, but the game would have played out differently. You know, I mean it's the difference between playing ahead and playing from behind, which is especially a factor for a team like the Vikings that likes to run the ball with Dalvin Cook and take their defense off the field, take pressure off Kirk Cousins, all that. Uh, momentum is a big part of it. I, I mean, the Vikings were dominating that game early. And uh, certainly, if they'd have, you know scored touchdown a touchdown on that second drive instead of having to to ask Dan Bailey to make a thirty whatever yard field goal, you know fourteen nothing or or twelve nothing, thirteen nothing, whatever, would have been better than than a touchdown and a field goal. Um, but I just you know it was pretty clear that the Vikings came to play uh, and that they were the better team and that they were ready to win that game handily. And I think Dan Bailey missing those kicks didn't just cost them the points; it clearly took the wind out of the team's sails where you can see from Mike Zimmer to the teammates on the sideline just going, for fuck's sake, man, make these kicks. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I just think that that, you know, like I said, it just took the wind out of their sails and they continued to fight back. And there were a couple times, even in the second half, where I kind of thought, geez, they still might find a way to win this game. Mm. Uh, but it just kind of proved to be too much to overcome. And the defense eventually kind of buckled and they ended up losing. But um, I, I think if he makes all those, I mean, certainly – 
I'll kind of give him a pass on the 54-yarder, whatever, even though he missed it badly. Um, but he makes those other kicks. The Vikings win the game. Well, I, I, I will have evidence to the contrary. Not that I disagree with anything you just said. And then we'll bring in Ben Lieber, who has the analyst's mind and uh, sees offense and defense and X's and O's in and how teams are built in a certain way. The nature of the way the Vikings are built and Mike Zimmer continues to insist they remain and not be in any sort flexible in game situations baffles me, but I'll explain later because we because we'll get we'll get back to this later on in in our discussion. You know about the half half hour point of this podcast, and then Ben Lieber at about the forty minute point. If all goes to plan, and they always do on this podcast, of course. Uh, and uh, Ben was also in Lincoln for the Huskers and the Gophers, and the latest just shit show that the Nebraska football program continues to display. I mean, it out shit showed Minnesota who can't get its coronavirus cases uh, under control and who, you know, PJ Fleck is a carnival act and, uh, and looks much more like a clown in years. He doesn't win like this year compared to last year. And I want to get Ben Lieber's takes from just being around both programs for at least a couple days uh, later on. That's why he's on the show today. So, uh, by the way, Gateway Lounge takeout it's there uh excellent wings the other day i had a pizza i tried their buffalo chicken pizza and their pepperoni i'd never had pizza there it, it competes with any pizza in town seriously it's great pizza uh zimmer loves the beef chislick one of these days vaccines are on the way we'll be there we'll be there together again doing the broadcast this podcast from the Gateway Lounge on West 41st Street. It is open. They have great lunch specials. And again, for those not ready to go back to restaurants, they do do takeout. Their food and service and the people who work there, all excellent and worth your local support. Okay. Um, take me there. Were you, by the way, were you physically in the Pentagon for the Jacks and the Yotes on Sunday? Saturday? Saturday. Yes, I was. Okay. Uh, I mean... This was not going according to plan, as your story kind of alluded to in the Yargus leader, that you had, my God, uh, a USD team that was 0-5, a Jackrabbit team that came in 5-2, and and the Yotes were hot out of the gates. The Jacks didn't have Douglas Wilson, but take me to the shot heard around the state, Zim, and, uh, and the latest scintillating chapter in this rivalry. Um, well, we didn't see it neither Brian or I, the punch from Noah Friedel, um, you know, we're sitting, we're sitting up in the suite where they have a socially distanced and, uh, Stanley Amude a couple seconds before it happened had gone up for a rebound and come down really hard. Like one of those, you know, where a guy gets undercut as he goes up for a, a rebound and then can't catch himself when he falls. And it looked like he landed on his wrist and it was really loud. Of course, with no fans in there, it, it echoed even louder. And so Brian and I are both kind of like, geez, is, is, did he break his wrist or something? You know, and then uh, he, he got up and, and walked down to the other end of the court and appeared to be OK. So Brian and I both at the same time kind of looked down to our computer screens to essentially at the same time, both tweet like Stanley Amude appear, appears to be OK after going up high for this rebound and falling hard. But it looks like he's OK. Well, while that's while we're got our faces in our monitors uh no right up punches him in the nuts and it was on a play coming around a screen and uh he didn't react right away they go down to the other end of the court and i think i don't know if amude thought the refs were going to see it and they didn't but he, he eventually decided to 
kind of shout out in pain or something. And uh, they went to the video and then it became pretty obvious. I don't know if you've seen the clip by now. Um, there, there's really no wiggle room for, for Noah Friedel or anyone else to imply that it was, you know, an accident or, or taken out of context or just looked, you know, he, he clearly made a, just made a decision uh, to whack the dude. And uh, it, <laughs> that's a bad look anyway. Um, Cause it's just a shitty thing to do on the court. Um, but the fact that Stanley Mude was having the game of his life was just killing the Jacks. And that if the Jacks had any hope of coming back to win that game, it was probably going to rest on Noah Friedel taking over in the second half. Cause let's face it, he's their best player. Uh, certainly right now their best scorer. So, um, it, you know, everything you could kind of say that all hell broke loose a little bit there. And um, he was ejected. They went to the half. Um, the, you know, the place was still kind of buzzing about it. And uh, then, you know, like I said, the Jacks didn't have their best shooter in the second half trying to make up a 20-point deficit, whatever it was. I think it was 16 at halftime, something like that. Got as high as 22, I think. Um, I mean, it was it was just such a weird day because no one really gave USD much of a shot to win the game. Uh, you got even without Doug Wilson. I mean, they just hadn't been making any shots their first few games. They were 0-5. And granted, it was – not your typical 0-5, you know, Nebraska, Colorado, some good teams. Uh, but plus the Jacks were rolling. You know, they'd won four in a row and looked really good. Didn't look like they needed Doug Wilson. And I don't know that they came out flat so much as USD really came out looking like they were a team that was just kind of pissed off and sick of losing and that they had just kind of made up their minds that, yeah, this losing streak is ending today. And uh, Amude kind of put the team on the, on his back, certainly, but it wasn't just him. I mean, they just came out on fire early on and they had a ton of energy and – they really, you know, just seemed to want it more than the Jacks. And then when all that other shit happened, it just kind of, I think for SDSC, they all kind of said like, well, this just isn't our day. And uh, that was that. Yeah. I mean, w- your point about USD beyond a mood, I mean, when you shoot 12 of 23 from the three, 12 of 24 from the three point arc, I mean, that's 50%. That's ridiculous. You're hard to beat. And uh, I think it's great just for the Yotes part because I I want both of these teams to be good and I want to see them eventually whether we're going to have a crowd in there or not it's much better with the crowd I want to see them play ideally in the championship game of the Summit League tournament whether that happens or not we don't know but like this is this can be and has been a very good rivalry the, both programs have been really good SDSU a little bit better the last few years so uh, I I was happy to see the Yotes might might stand a chance to have a decent team and a competitive team this year, even though they had started 0 and 5. And of course they have a chance because Stanley Amude and his 41 points, which was the most in 15 years by a Yote, first time anyone's gone 40 in that program for nine years. That's uh, I mean that, that that'd be our headliner. That'd be that'd be good enough. I mean it's a compelling enough deal that the Yotes beat the Jacks when it appeared you know they had no business doing so the way these two teams had started the season and that they're built. But again, the you don't see a punch in the balls very often in sports, and it, it was situation. It was the person that did it. It was who he did it to. I mean those because Douglas Wilson wasn't in the game. Those are the two best players on the court. Uh, Amude was on fire, and if you were writing a movie script about a game like this or this situation, two arch rivals, and then these two main combatants, it's like that's what I, I like. You, you'd laugh at the movie script that said, "Okay, Noah Friedel's a bit of a feisty kid who's had his problems before that we could get into," and I. But 
like really he's just going to punch the guy in the balls? I mean, how desperate and pathetic and bush league is that? And I know that probably we're going to have some T area fans listening to this and people who know Noah Friedel listening to this. But what else can we say? But that, and uh, for, so uh, it's surprising when that ever happens in sports, that's always going to be the headliner. Plus, you know USD fans in the age of social media, Zim, I don't know if you've seen it, but there are nutcracker memes out there. It is the Christmas season. Um, <laughs> for guys like you and me, this is great. I mean, it's the, the act is horrible, but the, 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 the wow factor of it, I guess, uh, to add to whatever comes next, these two teams play each other two more times. Is um, is great, I guess, for lack of a better word. Uh, you say so. The act yeah. is awful. The act is awful. The storyline is No, I get what you're saying, but I'd just as soon not have to write about that shit, especially when I have a bunch of idiots trying to tell me that I don't know basketball because I think punching a guy in the balls is bad. But anyway. Um, yeah, you know, you, yeah, yeah, yes. You, you had your own adventure with this, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm rooting for Noah, and I think most people are. And I've kind of been of the opinion so far that this idea that he's a head case or he's a guy that you don't want in your program, that that's been way overstating it. And I, and I felt like a lot of it was sour grapes from USD fans or, or whoever else, Augustana, Wright State, I don't know, um, that you know, they're, they're just pissed off that he doesn't play for their team, you know, because he kind of, after a little bit of a slow start last year, he was unbelievable down the second half, down the stretch and started this season looking every bit like he's going to be the best guard in the Summit League. Um, and so, yeah, you hear this, well, he's a head case, or he does this, that, and the other. I I'm not privy to exactly what are the things he's done in the last year or so to get a couple disciplinary uh, – to get disciplined a couple times from Eric Henderson. Uh, I just know that that he has been. Uh, he, he's been forced to sit out the first half of a couple games. He might have even been suspended for a full game last year. I, I can't – I don't remember for sure, but – the point being, this incident on Saturday was not the first uh, incident that he's had. He's only a sophomore, and he's already faced team discipline from the coach two, three, four times, something like that. Um, that's a little bit troubling. Now, it, I'm assuming, again, I, Eric Henderson hasn't said what those incidents were before, whether it was, you know, he skipped class or he was late for practice or wh whatever it was. But the fact that it wasn't, you know, this long-term suspension kind of led me to believe that, okay, it's it's minor shit. And if you got a guy who, who's capable of scoring 20 points a game, being an electric player like Noah Friedel is, everyone's entitled to their opinion. I'm the kind of guy who says, you know what, I'll live with that stuff. I, I'm certainly not going to chase this guy out of my program because he's late for practice once in a while or whatever these these minor things are that, that has been getting him in a little bit of trouble before. But now on Saturday, obviously it, it reached another level. Uh, you can't go around punching guys in the nuts. And that was why I sent out the tweet that said, hey, you know, We've had this little, you know, ticky-tack stuff, whatever it's been, and Hendo's been more or less, I don't want to say sweeping, sweeping it under the rug, but just kind of tolerating it. Well, now it's reached a point where, okay, now you got to do something about it. And I think if you if you heard Eric Henderson's post-game comments uh, after the game, uh, he certainly didn't try to duck it. Uh, he certainly didn't try to downplay it. And, you know, he used the exact sentence, Noah has strides to make. <laughs> I guess. You know, I mean, that, that's a pretty that's a pretty definitive statement. I mean, that's him saying, like, he still isn't where he needs to be. You know, he this is he still has growth to – he still has to grow. Um, it'd be one thing if he just said, oh, this is a totally isolated incident. Well, he didn't say that. 
You know, he made it clear that he's disappointed in this guy. He said multiple times he will be held accountable. Now, what that means, I don't know. I asked him specifically, will you add further discipline? Is he going to be suspended for their next game, which isn't for another month, by the way? Yeah. Um, and and, and he, he said, well, we'll worry about that later. And that's up to him. I'm, I'm not in any way saying that Eric Henderson needs to listen to me or anyone else. He, he's a good coach. He can do what he's got to do. The point is he's got to get Noah Friedel to understand, like, dude, you can't keep doing this stuff, man. You know, you got to get it under control um, because he's got the chance to be, he is already such a great player. And that's the only thing really that's holding him back right now. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I love the fact that he's a, a cocky kid, that he's got some swagger, that he's willing to give it back and forth with the refs, with the other team, all that kind of stuff. But obviously there's a line and, you know, punching a guy in the nuts is obviously way over that line, but there's even some of the other stuff that it's like, dude, just, just, what are you doing? You know, just, just, just get it together. Yeah, that you ever see something like that happen in a basketball game, a punch to the junk, is uh, shocking, but it was not shocking who it came from. There has been there have been immaturity issues with him, and this is not headline news. And I am I'm with you on everything you just said. I like he's he's dazzling to watch. Um, I don't know him personally. I, I know you know I know a few things about him that you do as well behind the scenes. I, I don't think it's out of line to say he has maturity issues. If you only knew the the punch in the nards on Saturday, that 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 would be an agreeable statement. Um, and so maybe he's a good kid, and 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 will and he'll get a chance whether he gets suspended a game or not. He's he's a sophomore, and he'll have ample chances to to grow and change that part about him, perhaps without having to compromise the cockiness and the swagger and the kind of things that contribute to him being such a good player player and competitor and clutch competitor too. He's shown this year already how clutch he is, how you're going to need him and he's going to be something to rely on that you, that not every program gets and not every good program like SDSU all, all, always gets. Um, you know, I, he's going to do some great things. Oh, I think there's, there's absolutely a way for him to cut out the bullshit and still maintain that personality, yeah. that edge, that swagger. No one is asking him, at least no one should be asking him, in my opinion, to like, you know, suddenly turn into a choir boy, you know, n- n- you know, get rid of that competitiveness to stop playing with fire, you know, and, and, and occasionally, you know, I, I know people don't like that he gets after the ref sometimes that he, you know, jaws with opposing players. I, you know, I, I think it's hard to like to draw a definitive line and say this is okay and this isn't you know i like we both i think agree some of that i think is good especially if that is what helps you become the player that you are and i think eric henderson understands there's a fine line he's got to walk between i don't want to take away this kid's intensity his edge the thing that makes him a special player but also there's obviously we've got to establish a line somewhere where it's like dude when this gets to a point where it's detrimental to the team where it's detrimental to you that's where it's got to stop Right. And, well, I think he should be suspended a game. This is where we'll leave the discussion. Uh, I understand they won't play for a while, and he and, and Hendo can do some things behind the scenes to discipline him to, to maybe get the point across. But uh, I think it, it, if he doesn't suspend him a game, it can be convenient because we will have kind of forgotten about it by January 8th. Not forgotten about it, but... It you know if if he had a yeah. if they had a game on tonight or this weekend then it, it'd be hot and you know there'd be a lot of people 
uh, beyond us two that would say, yeah, got, I mean, look what he did. You got it. And if he has a past history, sit him for a game, um, you know, and, and live with the consequence of that. Even if Douglas Wilson, now your two best players are not, you might have to lose a game because of this. Uh, that's what he should do. And I don't think it should be any different on January 8th. And that's just me. Uh, it's up to Hendo, but I, I don't think I'm out of line by saying he should be at least, he should be at least suspended for a full game for this by his own, by his own coach. You? Yeah, I, I kind of think the same, but you know, I'm not big on telling coaches what they're supposed to do. There. And, um, you know, I thought John Stiglmeyer should have suspended himself for a game when he got his DUI. He chose not to. I didn't feel like that was the end of the world. I don't suddenly think less of John for doing that. There. I had an opinion. He had an opinion. It's kind of the same thing here. Do I, I agree with you? I think he should be suspended for a game. If he's not, I would assume that means Eric Henderson is confident that he was able to get through to his player in a different method and he's the coach it's up to him to make that decision uh and and to put a bow tie on this going back to the rivalry because rivalries are the best thing about college athletics and then rivalry games with a crowd there is even better and we've heard about the dead jackrabbits or dead coyotes uh being thrown onto the floor back when things were a little less politically correct uh and these two teams were in the north central conference and although a lot of people who are a part of it now, coaches, administrators, even some fans are glad that kind of stuff is gone. Still to have, again, chapters like this, it kind of makes me wish that uh, everything could miraculously be speeded up, sped up. Uh, more so just for the for the betterment of humanity overall <laughs> uh, that that you know be, beyond what could happen to get a crowd into the Jacks Yotes game to have a full house the next time these two teams play preferably in Vermilion uh, which they won't even get to do that because of the coronavirus and the way we've scheduled this and they're going to play back-to-back nights in Brookings uh, but man if the next game were in Vermilion <laughs> I mean that uh, you know that would be that would be kind of fun and interesting and hot, but it's probably going to be in Brookings with three or four hundred fans, and and uh, we'll have to we'll have to live with that. But um, I and and I talked to Hendo a couple weeks ago after the Iowa State win on the road, and I asked him about Friedel, and and I said, well, what has he added to his game? What has changed? And it was a specific question about his physical on court capabilities. But I think if Noah had matured in the way that the head coach and anybody around him would have liked to have uh, because this immaturity thing is not a new issue, then Hendo would have said something. He would have tossed that in there. You know, he's worked on his, you know, he what he said was Noah's fearless now going to the hoop. He's added that dimension to his game. Uh, he's not just a shooter. He can score in that kind of way, and, and he's been unselfish, and he's getting some assists, and he was leading the team in assists after three games. But I think, all true, by I, the I think, way. Uh, all true. Uh, but if if there was something intangible that he had seen, he would I, knowing Hendo, he would have dropped that right because it's uh, he would he would have said um, something um, in in the most positive light. And I think Hendo is good at it. That says uh, you know I like the way he's uh, matured, leader, personality, blah blah blah. He didn't say that, and obviously that's it's true, and that's why because now we saw this and. Uh, and we move on because, uh, by the way, what's with uh, what's with Douglas Wilson? Hendo told me that he's just not 100%. He's not practicing every day. They, till that point, through five games, they had been playing him every night. Um, but how, like, do we have any idea of how much longer this, is this the same injury from last year? How long is it going to linger? How much will it affect what the kind of damage the Jacks can do? It's hard to say. They're being pretty quiet about it. I think it's, you know, somewhat a, a holdover thing from last year. But also I know... 
uh, he got banged up a little bit in either the Iowa State or the Bradley game. Um, it it kind of starting to look like he's just never going to be fully healthy. Like it's a little bit of a Maya Selen sort of thing. Um, they made it sound like he could have played this weekend. I, I mean, it sure didn't look like it. I mean, he was limping pretty obviously. He didn't look like a guy. It's not like he was out there, you know, testing it out and shooting around. I mean, he, he looked pretty unavailable to me. Uh, they do have a month now before they have to play any more games. And if they do schedule any game, Hendo did say they're going to try and schedule another game or two in the interim if they can, because of course you, you don't want to have to sit for a month. Uh, if they're able to get another game, it's probably going to be, you know, against a Mount Marty or a Dakota state or somebody like that. And in that case, you don't, you, you don't need Doug Wilson to be playing in those games anyway. Uh, unless it's just to, you know, try and get him up to speed a little bit and, and have him tested out. So I think, you know, I don't think it's time to panic yet, given that there's so much time before the Summit League games start up again. Um, but it's, you know, he didn't look awesome in those first few games when he was playing. He didn't quite have the explosiveness explosiveness that we've seen. And, you know, now in hindsight, it kind of looks like maybe that's because, you know, maybe he was out there at 85, 90%, not 100%. Big ball of wax. SDSU is the favorite. Uh, you know, Friedel's going to play again, whether it's the next game or not. And uh, Douglas Wilson, I, I, I you know, I don't, not, I, it's not ideal, but he'll be out there. So they're still the favorites, and I don't think that changes after the USD loss or what we saw for three days against, uh, against the Bison and UND. Uh, is how 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 do things look for you heading into the Summit League slate? Uh, with the way with getting to see all of these teams up close and just kind of start with USD because they're the other team of interest around here. And they made the big splash on Saturday night in beating the Jacks. Um, I, I would say as long as Stanley Amude doesn't get hurt, USD right. has a chance. They're not going to be as good or as hot as they were. That's just not going to happen. They lost their two games before that uh, with not having enough firepower against UND and NDSU. But what does the Valley picture, especially with the Dakotas teams look like right now? Well, I still think the Jacks are the heavy favorite. They should win the league by a couple of games because uh, they're just that much more loaded than everyone else. Uh, even if Doug Wilson is never fully healthy. I mean, Baylor Shireman has gone from being a decent freshman player to a, just a tremendous all-around player. He's been unbelievable. And if you assume that uh, Noah Friedel is going to be okay and uh, learn from this incident and move forward not having any more issues – He's a 20 points a game kind of guy, a guy who can take over games. Tremendous player. Could end up winning the MVP of the league if he can keep it together. You're going to get dug back at some point. Uh, Matt Dentlinger finally had a decent game against uh, one of the North Dakota schools. I can't remember which one. Um, so the pieces are all still there. Um, I, I think given how USD, I don't want to say exposed them in that third game, but what they did to them, uh, it proves that they're not invincible. Uh, and also, I, I kind of like USD this year. Like, I, I was a little bit – I mean, not like I've been talking to every single USD fan that I know, but the few people that have showed up in my mentions or some of the stuff I've read uh, kind of makes it sound like their fans aren't really high on that team this year, that they don't have very high expectations. And I'm not saying they should have high expectations necessarily, but Stanley Muda is really freaking good, you know, and they got some pieces around him. They're not as deep as the Jacks, certainly, at least from a – they maybe don't have – you know, four or five kind of impact players like the Jacks do, but they got a decent enough supporting cast around Stanley Amude. And then when you look at the rest of the league, I'm just not impressed. You know, North Dakota State won the league last year, graduated a bunch of dudes. They're going to try and win ugly this year, and they'll have some success doing that because Dave Richmond's a really good coach. 
North Dakota, I think, can be a good team. Philip Rebrock is a really good player, and Paul Sather's a really good coach. Um, Oral Roberts is a team that people like. They got picked second in the league. I'll believe it when I see it. I know they got some good players. I know they've done some encouraging things in non-conference, but you know they they seem to be one of those teams that every year when people say they're going to be good, you know they they as soon as they lose a couple games that they weren't supposed to or or things don't go right, they tend to kind of fall off. So I think it's the Jacks kind of head and shoulders above everyone else. Uh, but I think aside from you know Western Illinois who's completely rebuilding and I don't really know much about Kansas City or anything uh, I think everything else after that is kind of up for grabs and should make for an interesting conference tournament where you know SDSU is the best team but they got to win three times and they've been at the Pentagon twice already in three games and three days scenarios and both times they played great in the first two games and then shit the bed in the third game so you know, that I think should give hope to the other teams yeah. in the conference that this, this thing mm. is wide open. Sure. Good thought. And, uh, and for USD, they, <laughs> they, in, in this case, they lost those first two games and then they beat the best team in the third game. So, uh, we're looking forward to that, but things won't tip off until uh, just after the new year calendar to 2021 flips over and SDSU will wait a week longer than everybody else will have that first week by. All right, nobody's listening anyway. A couple of other topics before we get to Ben Lieber, one of the radio voices of the Minnesota Vikings and a national television college football analyst and former Vermilion Tanager. Uh, okay, so Twins and Saints, there's the unlikely marriage and then there's also what, what the fact that the St. Paul Saints are now the AAA affiliate of the Minnesota Twins. Where does that leave Sioux Falls and the, and the Canaries? Those are the two separate issues of that big news for, from last week. And we'll just start with the Twins and the Saints. I thought you wrote it beautifully as someone who's obviously lived in Sioux Falls your whole life, loves the sport of baseball, loves going out to Canaries games. And, you know, of course, makes the occasional road trip up to the cities to see the Twins or the Saints, usually the Twins. Uh, you know, if you would have told anybody 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, that the Saints would become the AAA affiliate of the Twins, you'd probably laugh. That's ridiculous. They love to thumb their nose at the Twins. And the Twins still try to brush them off as that's beer league baseball. Uh, so what, what's your whole reaction to the, this moment that came? Um, well, there were some whispers in the last couple of years, obviously, that they'd been talking about it. And I don't remember how long ago or where I was the first time I heard that. But I do remember the first time I hear it, heard it thinking like, really? Like, would that work? Like, obviously, it makes a ton of sense logistically. That that goes without saying. But just, you know, is there a league they could play in? And would the Twins want to do that? And would the Saints want to do that? Um, but it always seemed kind of noticeable to me that Dave St. Peter, the Twins president, and probably the most visible kind of public face of their front office, had always seemed to go out of his way to say nice things about the Saints, whereas, you know, that was a departure from what we were used to from this franchise. And, uh, you know, I think the Saints, what they did in 1993, 94, when they brought independent baseball, essentially made it a thing. They practically invented it. Uh, this whole idea of, you know, between innings promotions and the goofy stuff and making every game this party atmosphere event and, and yeah, outlaw baseball, renegade baseball, whatever you want to call it. Um, it continued to work in St. Paul for 25 years. You know, they still have out, outstanding attendance and now they got this amazing new stadium to add to the experience. It never really seemed to get old in St. Paul, but I do think it kind of got old everywhere else. Um, it's kind of like, 
that's that's not what just we expect at minor league baseball everywhere that there's going to be goofy promotions and funny jerseys and giveaways and between innings games and all this kind of stuff and i think yeah i mean you just see what what's happening in in independent baseball and even in, in affiliated minor league baseball that's part of the reason major league baseball is paring down uh their minor league system it's it's a little bit bloated um a lot of towns are having trouble supporting it and I think the Saints kind of recognize, like, yeah, we got an awesome thing going here, but if we can take our our brand, the St. Paul Saints brand, not the American Association, the Northern League, any of that, if we can take our St. Paul Saints brand and marry it with a Twins organization that's in a good place right now, you know, gone to the playoffs two years in a row, they have a new stadium too. Uh, the Twins are probably as popular in the Twin Cities right now as they have ever been. Uh, it was a good time for the Saints to do this too, to latch on to that, um, because you have to wonder about the future of independent baseball when affiliated baseball is going through this, you know, uh, reorganization, to put it kindly. Then you throw a pandemic on top of it. Who knows, you know, what the effects are going to be on that with with that on, on various teams. I just think there's a lot of people going, why would the Saints want to do this? Like, I get it. I think it makes sense for them. And for the Twins, obviously, it makes a ton of sense. Now they don't have to fly their guys all the way out to Rochester, New York, or Edmonton, Canada, Salt Lake City, all these other AAA affiliates they've had over the years that have been a million miles away, right across the street. And I think when they had St. Paul serve as their training facility this year during the COVID season, that was probably when they're like, oh man, this is awesome. We have to make this a thing. And so it's a thing, and I think it's going to be great for both of them. Yeah, it has a lot to do with that brand new ballpark as well. I'm not so sure if they. Oh, I'm not sure if they make this deal or they do this no, if they don't no. have that new. If this, no. if they were still at Midway Stadium, uh, Twins would not be interested. Because from what I gathered, we interviewed Chris Atterbury, who was a Canaries broadcaster '99 to 2001, and then moved his way up to the Saints when the Saints uh, ownership group, the Gold Clang Group, still owned the Canaries. So he worked his way to go make the big. In the American Association calling games for the St. Paul Saints. And then he parlayed that after five years into being one of the voices on the Minnesota Twins radio network, which he still is after 15 years. So I encourage people, if you really want a serious deep dive into someone who's lived all three teams, but especially the Saints Twins marriage, uh, Inside the Birdcage podcast, wherever you can find podcasts, or simply at anchor.fm slash canaries. Shameless plug, but it, but some things I gathered from that hour with Chris Atterbury that I'll share right here. And again, one of them is facilities. I mean, Rob, it, it, better or worse, and I don't think Atterbury loves it. He can only go so far to criticize it. He doesn't love how, not only is Rob Manford taking over Major League Baseball, he's taking over baseball. I mean, that's clear with what they, Major League Baseball wants more of a stranglehold on the minor leagues. I don't know if they're trying to blow up independent baseball, but, you know, uh, they took away 40 minor league teams, and, the, and it's a dr- drastic reduction, partly because of pandemic, recession, and as you said, just these teams are not being supported very well. It's a financial thing. But uh, the Saints are, insist, you know, Mike Vec, the, ulti- the, 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 you know, the managing owner, we all know the Vec family and their history of promotions in baseball, uh, the true mastermind behind all this, uh, the entertainment aspect of it. You know, he insists, they all insist, we'll let the Saints do their thing. You know, Major League Baseball and the Twins are not going to try to sterilize 
any sort of the uh, atmosphere and experience outside, you know, uh, away from the baseball at, at the games. They're, that will go on. Um, now, the, so there's the baseball aspect and there's the entertainment aspect of it. And uh, the Twins obviously wanted the Saints more than the Saints wanted the Twins. The Saints wanted to maintain their independence until this was too good of a deal to, to not uh, agree to. And uh, the Twins, for obvious reasons, proximity, and uh, facilities wanted the Saints. So here they've, they've made that move. You said you never believed it, and Atterbury said he never really believed it. But back when I still had a radio show, I, I did my job in taking something that Lavelle E. Neal III wrote in the Minneapolis Star Tribune, and Patrick Royce also wrote uh, in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. I mean, these are two of the most respected sports writers of our time in that, in that market. Uh, who and of course Lavelle's the beat writer. Where they said Sioux Falls is hungry for baseball. Sioux Falls has a chance to get the Twins, or Sioux Falls has a chance to get affiliated baseball. But uh, the Twins, they never specified what Sioux Falls meant. Is that Sanford? Is that the people of Sioux Falls? Is that leadership? Is that the Canaries ownership? They never specified. They never knew. Atterbury said that really that the the timing was wrong. There, there may be some hunger. There definitely is some hunger. I think you can sense it from the baseball community here. There are a lot of people that would love to have <laughs> uh, to be a part of the Twins and be a minor league affiliate of them or somebody. Um, but in this case, again, Manfred takeover facilities. Sioux Falls didn't have a new ballpark. Sioux Falls has the same old birdcage. They never had a shot this time around to get a minor league team, uh, but but an affiliated team. But Atterbury, and, and by the way, they were the, they, they were apparently, if they were ever a part of the picture, Sioux Falls would have been the backup plan to St. Paul because St. Paul's right there and they have the new facilities. But because we have the old ballpark, it doesn't fit into what they want. If Sioux Falls wants to get affiliated ball somewhere down the line, it has to have a new park. Uh, you have to have nice facilities for these organizations. Um, and, and, it, and I'm sure you agree with all that, but also... You've always been one that has said you don't really care or think it's necessary for Sioux Falls to have, uh, or it will be some big, prosperous, burgeoning thing if Sioux Falls gets uh, a double-A you know, or triple-A affiliated team in of Major League Baseball. Well, first of all, I, I yeah, I the whole idea that Sioux Falls is hungry for minor league, says who? Like, where did that come from? I sort of got this, the sense that that was something that had been planted by the twins as sort of like a bargaining chip with the saints or something like, Oh, we could always go to Sioux Falls. No, you can't. That was never, I mean, I, I, I hate to say that you were, I, I get why you, Hey, it was published. You want to look into that. Uh, but I thought the entire thing was inc- an incredibly, it, it was such bullshit. Well, I hate to beginning. interrupt you. I asked Lavelle, I said, who are the, what does it mean? Sioux Falls. I had him on the show and he yes. said, and he said he didn't really know, but I mean, yeah. but, but draw your conclusions. Sanford, I mean, what we said at the time, and I don't think it's, again, it's a speculation, but it's not like Sanford. And I'm saying it was bullshit. Sanford it was is bullshit. Done, Sanford, it was bullshit. <laughs> but Sanford has done everything to bring big time sports here and including big time sports facilities here over at their complex. And the final piece of the puzzle uh, that seems to for some reason be taking forever is baseball in a new baseball park. But, uh, and they were a big sponsor of the twins, but well, the so much has happened with is, that organization since Well, but May. keep in mind, you haven't mentioned it yet. Um, not only did the twins get St. Paul as their triple A affiliate, they got Wichita as their double A affiliate and Wichita just spent a shitload of money to build a new stadium. They thought they were going to get a triple A, a triple A team. They're pissed that they have to be the twins double A team 
with this brand new stadium that they got. So the idea that Sioux Falls was the backup plan to St. Paul, that's bullshit too. Wichita was probably the backup plan. Um, or, or it would have worked out that way somehow. I mean, Sioux Falls, and, and I know you're not saying anything different than this, but until Sioux Falls gets a new stadium, that's a non-starter. Yep. Uh, they're not, they're not going anywhere in the birdcage. Um, the bigger question, you know, this idea that, oh, if, if they'd have built a new stadium, they'd be the, yeah, I think Chris is right in saying like, just the timing just wasn't there. If this, if a new stadium had been built five years ago and it was, uh, obviously it probably wouldn't be as nice as CHS field in St. Paul, um, but if it was a really nice one, then maybe Sioux Falls would have been the choice over Wichita for a double A team. But even that seems a little unlikely given Wichita apparently built this triple A caliber stadium that they wanted to have a team for. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's, I think a lot of people have looked at it over the years and said, why can't we be affiliated? And you and I have, have often beat the drum that like, yeah, that'd be great, but it just won't work geographically. There are no other affiliated teams in the region for them to play. Well, now all of a sudden St. Paul jumps in and it kind of goes, Oh, well, does that mean that maybe it could be made to work somehow? Well, St. I mean, you there is a team now in this area. Uh, you've got Des Moines, you've got St. Paul. I mean, it starts to look a little bit more like a possibility. Uh, but again, until the Canaries get a new stadium, they're not going anywhere. Um, and then, you know, if St. Paul's entrenched at the, as the AAA team, which clearly they are, you know, would the Twins be an option to be, you know, AAA for the Cubs or the White Sox or the Brewers, or would they potentially be able to replace Wichita as the AA team somewhere down the line? I suppose maybe all those things are a little more possible or a little more likely today than they were, you know, a month ago. Um, but I, I still think, you know, the idea that we're on the cusp of, of a something changing for Sioux Falls other than just not having St. Paul in your league anymore, I, I don't think there's anything coming down the pike. Uh, need a new stadium to get the thing started, and there's no evidence that that's coming anytime soon. Sanford has said they have a blueprint for a ballpark out there, but there, no specifics have been made about that. What changes with Sanford now that Kelby Krabinoff, who is a major driving force in bringing the Sanford International, the Summit League Basketball Tournament, in the Premier Center, all those things to Sioux Falls, the pentagon and all these major college basketball games including by the way iowa gonzaga is going to be on cbs not cbs sports network cbs on saturday uh the great shots facility which is the kind of thing that you only see the top golf thing in huge u.s cities uh you know getting here before they got one in omaha i mean that's all great now that that kind of visionary in kelby is gone who knows what the sporting landscape and if and it, baseball's a part of that, with Sanford being such a financial driver of the bus, and of course with uh, Denny Sanford's personal issue, all that. I mean, it's um, who knows uh, to be determined. But you got to get a park, and you know the city's not in any big hurry. Uh, the Canaries' ownership is, you know, I work for them, so I have to watch what I say. But I mean, they're you know it's they're in not, flux. They're not. It's well, they they're trying to sell the team, so of course they're not con- too much too concerned about pitching in to build a new ballpark. So. Um, there's well, there will be plenty of meat on that bone once we get closer to baseball season. Um, okay, I'll finish with this before we get to Ben Lieber in just a few minutes. Okay, so Dan Bailey, I get it. Uh, there's a, one of my favorite shows that covers the Vikings. Uh, I, I heard the other day, Judd Zolgad's a part of it. He's veteran beat writer. You know, they do this part, pie chart of blame every time the Vikings lose. You know. How many, how many pieces of the chart? How many reasons are there that they lost? And, like, everybody had Dan Bailey as at least 70%, if not 90% of that pie against Tampa. I get it. You lift 10 points out there. You're playing behind by two or three scores a lot of the game when you couldn't have been. That affects the way you play the game. I get it. I'm not so sure the Vikings still win that game if Bailey makes all those kicks or two out of those four, three field goals and an extra point. Uh 
I mean, the <laughs> – the, the the way Mike Zimmer in that offense, all you need to know, how about one of the touchdown drives they actually had? They're down by, what, I think 17 points in the second half, and they go on a 14-play, 80-yard drive, and they're operating as if they're up by two or three scores. They had seven completed passes on that 14-play drive, and they were all the running backs and tight ends. There were none to uh, J- Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen. In a game that they were trailing most of the game, even though they dominated time of possession, the Vikings, who have uh, one receiver who's uh, first in the NFL in red zone touchdowns, Adam Thielen, and another receiver who is surpassing Randy Moss's rookie marks. I get it's a different day and age, but still, he's had five 100-yard games already. Those two guys combined for 12 targets and seven completions. Uh, uh, check that. They combined for, yeah, 12 targets, seven completions, 39 yards each, and you were trailing most of the game, and you have them. And for a second straight week, the team you're facing, their weakness in the defense is cornerbacks. And for some reason, the Vikings, Mike Zimmer cannot get out, uh, of, and Gary Kubiak, of pound Dalvin. Keep it. It's Dalvin, Dalvin, Dalvin. We don't trust Kirk. We don't even trust Kirk when we're behind and we need to throw. There's still a lack of urgency when it comes to the offense, a lack of trust in, in getting the downfield passing game going when you need it. Yes, because your kicker has put you in that position. And by the way, even though the Vikings dominated time of possession 2-1, to one, and, they're the, and no other team in the NFL this year that has done that, to have the ball at least 39 minutes, has lost. <laughs> the Vikings have lost twice doing that now. Tampa Bay was averaging two more yards per play than the Vikings, 6.2 to 4.4 despite the Vikings having 27 more plays. So, yes, Bailey put them in a bind, but I, I, I don't – I'm not laying this all on Bailey. The Vikings still, against a team that was near the same record as them, have shown that it's nice to be in the playoff hunt that makes the games more exciting. They're not built much for beyond a, a first-round wildcard loss of that. And we shouldn't just dump it all on Dan Bailey. Did I make a good case? Not really. I mean, because, uh, again, I mean, if, if that, that's how they're built. And if Bailey makes those kicks, uh, it works out a lot better. And I would also say I, I sort of shared your opinion on that the touchdown drive that took forever. I was kind of like, geez, could you guys hurry it up? But also, at the same time, when you're down multiple scores, uh, you've got to worry more about getting the points than hurrying for that first one. Like, you get back into the game, then you can start going to hurry up and playing a little bit desperate. But when you have multiple scores to make up, you got to get one score before you can get two scores, before you can get three scores. So I understand that you're like, we're not going to get out of our game plan. We have to get these points here no matter how long it takes. It did take too long, and that did make it more difficult for them to come back. And again, Dan Bailey helped put them in that position. I'm kind of okay with that, even though I would have liked to see him hurry up. I think if I was going to he's a pie chart of blame. I would give probably 90% of it to Dan Bailey and 10% to the offensive line. I mean, geez, once again, they were terrible. I mean, there were so many plays where Kirk cousins drops back to Pat and like a guy comes in unblocked, you know, like if they're not recognizing blitzes and that could partly be on cousins, you know, but guys are just coming in completely unblocked or the pocket collapses before he's even finished just three, five step drop. The offensive line was terrible again, and that was why – I mean, how many times – we've seen one of – you know, you can argue about how good Kirk Cousins is or isn't. He's been phenomenal on third down this year. And yesterday, Sunday, uh, almost every third down, he, he wasn't even able to get a pass off. I mean, they were blitzing the hell out of him or just pressuring the hell out of him on third down. And that was, again, you know, very disappointing. And that's that's nothing new. I mean, the offensive line has been – 
you know, probably a little bit better at times this year, but still a problem area. And and I thought that, if anything, was the biggest culprit besides Dan Bailey in them being able to come back. All right, fair. We'll uh, we'll see how Ben Lieber feels on all of this. Uh, you're relieved of your duties. We'll talk again next week. Thanks as always, Zim. All right, John. See ya. Why are you laughing? That was a terrible outro. Fuck you. Because you know round drinks. Yes. Well, I said, let's let Ben Lieber settle this. So I guess we will. Uh, Not only is he a Minnesota Vikings ex-linebacker, a South Dakota Sports Hall of Famer out of Vermilion, but also uh, he's a national television analyst for Fox and FS1 and their coverage of college football. And he was in Lincoln on Saturday to watch. I don't know what to call that between the Huskers and the Gophers. And uh, he'll he'll get to the heart of both programs' problems. But then on Sunday, of course, he was a part of the broadcast for Minnesota and Tampa Bay. And uh, an old friend of the old show over on Fox Sports 98.1. Uh, it's always great to get a hold of Ben Lieber, so I really appreciate it, man. But let's, let's, let's start from a player perspective, okay? Uh, from a guy who's obviously been in the locker room, poured a lot of blood, sweat, tears into a bunch of football games. Uh, when you watch Dan Bailey uh, leave 10 points off the board and the Vikings play from behind like that the whole game, how much, how much I guess, for lack of a better word, blame do you assess the kicker for this? Uh, well, normally when, when a kicker misses a kick or maybe even two, you you kind of understand you're like all right guys are they're allowed to make mistakes and unfortunately they they get so few but that they're every one of their mistakes carries so much weight and um so you want to be sympathetic towards it and and empathize just kind of with the situation they're in but you know when you when you know that you look at your team and your margin for error is so so slim you go down to Tampa Bay on the road, you're playing a team on paper that's supposed to be better than you. And you go out there and offensively, you know, pretty much handle them. I, I wouldn't say dominate them, but you're, you're handling them and you're putting in a lot of work to drive down the field. And then for your kicker to miss four kicks um, in total, it's hard not to put the blame on him. And I know that there's more that goes into it. There is an operation that you have to consider there's a snapper, there's a holder, and we don't know all the details, but you know, it's coming off of his foot. And so the buck sort of stops with him. And unfortunately in this situation, yeah, man, when you, when you leave 10 points on the board and I know one was a 50 plus yarder um, and the miss as bad as they were, it, it's, I mean, it's kind of the open and obvious that, yeah, the game, the, the game pretty much fell on his shoulders and he, he certainly didn't help his team win. I'll put it that way. Well, yeah, and the, the, what I like to do is take it a step further because that's so obvious what he's doing in that moment, and I can't imagine how the rest of the team, the guys who block and tackle uh, and make plays, how how pissed they would be at the kicker. And I, you know, I'd love to go behind the curtain on that in a moment. But at the same time, do the Vikings still win this game if Bailey makes all those kicks? Were they playing well enough to win? And people will say, well, they had 27 more plays than the Bucks, and they dominated the time of possession, 39 to. 20. Uh, and, 
the Bucks had two more yards per play than them. I mean, 6.2 to 4.4. And the way the Vikings operated, Ben, it, it just... I know Pete Bursich was frustrated because I listened to almost the entire broadcast when they barely squeaked out a win over Jacksonville, who had lost 10 in a row coming mm-hmm. in, where they could not take advantage of bad cornerbacks and one-on-one situations for Jefferson and Thielen, and they did it again in 80-degree weather <laughs> where the elements aren't affecting you and the weakness of a very good Tampa defense is their cornerbacks, and yet those two, Jefferson and and Thielen, combined for uh, 12 targets, I believe seven total catches, 38 nine yards apiece uh, on that 14-play, 75-yard drive when they did get behind three scores after another Bailey miss. Took eight and a half minutes. There were seven pass completions on that drive, and none of them to your top wideouts, two of the best in the league. Instead, you're throwing to running backs and tight ends when you're throwing. Uh, That's where I go. There's, it still is, uh, they're not finishing drives. They're having to kick, they're having to kick field goals too many times in that game. And there just needs to be a little bit more flexibility or imagination. Uh, and in some things, the obvious going to your, your wonderful all-star wideouts. Uh, but that, I'm just a layman. You were, you know, you've got the mind to break it down. What do you, what do you think of, of that side of the coin? Well, I think obviously in any sort of loss, you're going to look back and say, well, well why couldn't we have done this better? Why couldn't we do this better? Um, you know, that's a good defense over there in Tampa Bay. I mean, I, I, obviously they knew that, and nobody was giving Dalvin Cook any confidence that he was going to have a, a successful day in the run game, and he did, and so did the offensive line. And so that that was a positive. And so I, I think that they were, they were able to find some more balance, um, and, and now all that stuff was great all the points that you brought up are, are accurate and true. You know, why couldn't we use our, our two stud wide receivers more often? Well, I'm sure if we broke it down, it'd be based on the coverage that they were thrown, the pressure on those given plays, and maybe that there just had to be some outlets and some checkdowns because you had to be cognizant of their, of their pass rush the whole game. Um, so maybe that's just game situations and the play situations that, that, uh, that made that happen. I would say that, Listen, not every game is going to be exactly dropped the way you're supposed to. We ran the ball better than we expected. Therefore, the passing game has to take a little bit of a backseat. But then we couldn't be as explosive. And, and that's one thing that I think has started to come up a little bit more lately. We went from being this sort of big, big play, explosive passing game. And it was sort of feast or famine. And then... Cousins started saying, hey, I need to take more of a singles-doubles approach. And that actually worked. We were running the ball pretty well, and it was dink and dunk and letting the guys kind of run after catch. Well, now we need to bring an element back and kind of pick our spots and get the ball down the field a little bit more. You know, we had some explosive plays, but every drive was just grinded out. You know, there might be one chunk play. You know, I think there was – three possessions where we started to each drive with a passing play and they all went for quote unquote explosive plays. But then after that, it was just sort of uh, grinded out a couple runs, a couple short passes, and there just wasn't enough consistency. And I agree with you that, you know, where's the creativity? Um, you know, where, why can't we get the ball in the, in the hands of the playmakers? I think all of that's true. But then, again, to talk out the other side of my mouth, we got the tight ends involved in the pass game. That's, you know, you're finding balance and you're finding uh, pass just distribution, which is important. So the game does come down to more than just two guys in the passing game. And, um, and so, again, it's, it's a frustrating loss because I think the game plan for whatever it was when they came into the game, however it played out, 
maybe they weren't as, as explosive. They were doing enough to put themselves in a position to win the game. And, and they should have won the game, and they just didn't. All right, and we look ahead. Now they're a game out of the playoff picture, but they, you know, they still have their chances. They've got the Lions and the Bears and a Saints team that uh, Mike Zimmer proves to be the kryptonite for. He always finds a way to to topple Drew Brees and displayed that with a similar personnel, at least when it comes to the Vikings' offense in last year's playoff game. So there's still a chance this team makes the playoffs, but to actually make a run. I mean, you know, the NFC's. Flawed. Uh, you know, we still look at the Packers at the top, a ten and three, a team that can't win when they get punched in the mouth and can't, you know, can't play from behind very well. Not physical enough, and and uh, you know, the Seahawks, Tampa, Saints. I mean, all these, all these teams have their injuries, they have their flaws. But what what can you see that is salvageable for the Vikings to make that uptick in the last three games to where they can they can feel the team that can win one or two playoff games this year. Well, I th- I think that it comes down to coaching. I mean, if if we had if we had better talent on, on the defensive side of the ball and better depth, then I mean, you look at you look at the coaching that's taken place. It's been phenomenal. I mean, I know that Zim. It's it's funny every time the Vikings lose a game, it's like, oh, we need to fire the quarterback, we need to fire the head coach, and and uh, and that really couldn't be further from the truth, especially this season. I mean, both both cousins has been outstanding and the, and the job that the def- defensive staff and Zimmer has done given the, the lack of talent has been remarkable. Um, so I would say that I have faith overall in the, in the coaching staff that they're going to be put in the right positions. Now it's just a matter of like, gosh, who, who's, who's going to be out there to make the play? Um, you know, when we, when they give up a 48 yard pass play to Scotty Miller in the middle of the field, conceptually play should never have happened. You know, they're in a, cover three situation uh you gotta you got anthony harris in the deep center of the field i mean he it's not the coach's fault that he jumps an inside route and and forgets the fact that the fastest guy in the field is off to his left as as a number one receiver i mean the concepts are there the players have to make the plays and so um i i have faith at least going forward that this team is going to remain hungry they understand that their window is in the, in the door to get in the playoffs is closing and it's very it's just only cracked open at this point but there's still a way in and i think they're going to be focused to to beat the chicago bears this weekend and then as you pointed out they sort of have this this feeling that they've got Sean Payton and Drew Brees and the Saints' number and i think that's going to be a little bit different this year because the Saints defense is is really good and and legit and probably the difference maker for the past um, but the fact of the matter is, schematically, we match up really well against the Saints, and they always seem to struggle against our team. Um, so I would say that, that my faith lies in the coaching, and now the players just have to go and execute. Ben Lieber joining us. Uh, he's he's really carved out a nice broadcasting career for himself, not only with Vikings Radio every week, but also now calling college games for several years now. How many years are you in the college broadcasting business? Oh man! Um, and it was you know I yeah. retired. I retired in 2011. I started doing stuff sort of immediately in high school and some small college in 12. It probably wasn't full time until like 14. So you know, full time ish for the last six years. And you've done a, you do a lot of work in the uh, Big Ten and Big 12 around here, and most recently in Lincoln for the Gophers and the Huskers. Now I'll. I'll uh, 
I mean, I, we're running out of time, so I want to start with with Nebraska. I mean, Minnesota had about what thirty guys unavailable to play. They, mm-hmm. I think they traveled with sixty nine. Uh, they hadn't played in three weeks. So they're they're two and three. Their defense was atrocious. Forty nine to Michigan, thirty eight to Maryland, thirty five to Iowa, thirty one to Purdue. Um, you know, Nebraska looked like they had things figured out, but I mean, they're a mess. Nebraska's been a mess for. Uh, truthfully for about a decade now, but really for the last, we're looking at four straight losing seasons. Um, and it's just, they make football look so hard, Ben. I don't think that's a harsh thing to say uh, from, and I am a, you know, I'm a fan, but I mean, a lot of games go like this where, and again, this is against the Gophers, which we mentioned, they were favored to beat by 10 points. Nebraska's minus two in the turnover margin. They miss a short field goal. They had an eight-yard punt. They didn't have a sack. Ten-minute difference in time of possession. Uh, less than four yards per passing attempt. Uh, missed a lot of wide-open receivers. Um, there could be a lot of different reasons. What's one variable that seems to be, I don't know, maybe a common denominator why Nebraska makes football so hard and can't turn the corner? Well, I think it's one of the the last few things you mentioned. And it's quarterback play. I mean, we we look at every team's success, and it depends on how the quarterback plays. And you could have a good defense, bad defense. Your special teams could be poor, but if you can't get you can't get good quarterback play, uh, those things really don't matter. And and I look at Nebraska's situation with Martinez, and you know, as 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 he's like you know splattered all over the record books. I mean, it's like. You know, true freshman year, he came out on fire, and then all this other stuff. And he's, you know, always a true dual threat guy. And my goodness, like, but you know, look at all the open passes he missed. I mean, he connects on a couple of those open passes in that game, and the, the game's a completely different deal. It, it turns the tide in those moments, and all of a sudden now, I can speak for a defensive player when when they hit some of these open targets. Um, it's demoralizing to the defense. And now you go to the, the sidelines, you start second guessing like, okay, well, well, what are we doing here? Okay. Now I guess pay extra special attention to the running backs out of the backfield. And then all of a sudden now, now the run game might get going because your attention is kind of pulled away in a different way. And they start giving you a lot more to think about. And, but when they miss on those plays, you kind of get this false confidence. Like, okay, I won't make that mistake again, but you know, good thing they didn't hit it. And, um, and you kind of move on. And, and that's the thing. It's, it's a, it's, it's a land of missed opportunities, I feel like, for them. And then you start to look at it on the defensive side, and it exacerbates over there. Like, they can't stop the run game. I mean, it was a pretty simple run game. I mean, I was blown away by, by Minnesota having 22 days off. They came out with no, no creativity, zero creativity. They, they came out and did exactly what they've always done. They didn't show anything new. They're just like, all right, this is who we are. This is our offense. This is our defense, and we're just going to play it, and we want our guys to play fast. And it was a great philosophy, and I'm surprised, so surprised, that Nebraska, given that, that on paper had the better athletes, were trending in the opposite direction in a good way, um, laid an egg and looked like they got dominated in a lot of phases, and a lot of it starts with their quarterback. Yeah. Okay. So, it, is it is it symptomatic of a bigger problem, though? I guess when you look, and I don't know what kind of access you can tell me uh, during the pandemic that you that you get in the days leading up to the game, where you get to sit down and and get a glimpse inside the curtain. Um, so you can kind of modify whatever your answer is going to be here with that. But from just from I guess from just from watching them on the field, but also kind of understanding what's been going into it. How, I have so many questions. I'll try to whittle it down. How 
well coached are they and how much of a uh, how much of a chance is there for the ship to be uh, righted and guided in the right way or anywhere it looks so rudderless right now under scott frost it really does and um, it does look like it's going in the right know, direction I, or it doesn't well you know you you look at you look at the talent and yes i think it's going in the right direction and let me go back let me go back to what i was talking about with like with mike zimmer um you know, it's not, it's not his fault that he calls the right defense and guys are screwing up. Putting the guys in the right position, players are screwing up. Yes, you can say that, well, it's the, it's the development of practice and maybe there's a lack of understanding about what you're supposed to do. I get all that. But when you look at the missed opportunities in the game, especially offensively, they're calling the right plays. You know, like, like Scott Frost is looking at it from a top-down approach and says, okay, well, I know I can exploit this guy in space and I know I can get this guy on this route, let's call that play. And when that guy's wide open and your quarterback misses the misses the throw, that, that's not that's not coaching. You just got you just lack talent at that at that position. And so, and uh, and I will say this that I don't think McCaffrey is the answer either. You know, he may have a great name and uh, he may be athletic and run with the football, um, but I don't think that guy can throw the ball really well. Not certainly not any better than Martinez. And so that I put on Scott Frost. Well. What does your offense want to look like? I mean, you want to throw the ball and have a quarterback that can scramble and, and move around the pocket and buy some time, or do you want to have a running quarterback that can occasionally throw the football around? And um, so I, I think that he's got to answer the question of what does my offense want to look like? How do I, what's my identity? I, I don't think they have an identity on offense, um, but I think from an X's and O's standpoint, I think they're fine. I think he understands the game perfectly. He's, he put his players in the right position to succeed. They just didn't capitalize on it. Um, so I, I don't know, man. I, I know that, you know, I hear all the criticism, and the Nebraska fans certainly are loud and passionate, and there's a lack of confidence in the whole fan base, and that obviously is going to bleed down into the players as well. So when the players start losing faith in the coach, I think as an organization you got to start you got to think about, well, what are we doing here? If, if the, the, co- or the players aren't going to believe in the coach, that's going to bleed out to the national recruiting scene and all the opposing coaches are going to go, Oh, why would you go to Nebraska? I mean, those guys are sinking ship and all of a sudden you start losing the confidence of the recruits as well. So something's got to change and it's got to change fast. Uh, last one. Thank you. The direction, the Gophers, and I know you had the Hawkeyes the week before that they win six in a row to finish this quote unquote regular season uh, under mm-hmm. Kirk Ferentz. They're going to, you know, they, they, they'll finish outside of the big 10 championship game because Northwestern beat them. It came down to that game. But um, they're far more impressive than the other two Big Ten teams of rooting interest around here. I know you've also had the Cyclones, and they had a great year. Um, just some quick remarks about all three of where those programs are headed with those coaches. Iowa, Iowa State, Minnesota. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, clearly Minnesota, I think, has a, has, I believe, the right guy at the head coach spot. I mean, I, I think that's like, has done a great job of having some self-awareness about when, when to tone down his rhetoric and all that, and I, on all that. And I think that his his personality is what it is. Um, I think he's genuine, and I do think that he's got this team trending in the right direction. Um, they just need to get guys healthy. I mean, my goodness, I mean, they got hit uh, horribly with everything, and and so it's kind of a, a missed year. We don't really know what we're going to get out of them. I think he's going to appreciate the fact that he's going to have another year to develop that defense. Um, if they don't develop that defense, they're in, they're in a, a world of hurt for this next year. Uh, Iowa, um, 
they just continue to do what they always do. I mean, they're, they are, they are the, the blueprint. I think if you want consistency in any conference, not even just the big 10, um, they continue to find the right guys for what they want. I wish that they would find guys at the quarterback spot that were more dynamic, but for some reason they just want to find these guys that are just game managers. And I don't understand it. Same thing with, with Wisconsin. Why do you, why do you pigeonhole yourself and your offense in these, in these systems where you, you don't find quarterbacks or don't develop quarterbacks into game changing quarterbacks versus game managing quarterbacks. Um, and Iowa State, I, I think Iowa State has a blend of both. I think you have a super passionate coach in Matt Campbell. Obviously, everybody loves him, uh, even from the NFL standpoint. People are looking at him. Um, I think they have a nice blend of both. I think they can play physical football, like Iowa does, and and also they can they can be explosive and, and find athletes, in like like Minnesota can. And I love what John Haycock's doing with their defense. It's innovative. It's it's creative. It's perfect for the college football world. And and coaches from around the country at every level, every offseason are flocking to Ames, Iowa, to sit down with John and figure out how do you run this defense? What are you looking for? And um, and I think he's because of all the national attention. I think he's going to start stealing recruits from both of those teams because. Wow. I feel like they. I feel like they have the best, the best combination of physicality and athleticism being displayed right now. Wow! Uh, it was really good to hear your voice. Thank you for talking football. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I'd love to do it again soon. Appreciate your time as always, Ben. I'll let you get back to your yeah, kids. As always, man. Good to talk to you, bud. And that'll do it for this week's edition of Nobody's Listening Anyway. I just realized, and it's too late. The ship has sailed. I forgot to ask Ben Lieber about any great moments in him punching someone in the junk or being punched in the junk. That was going to be my lead-in question, the icebreaker, and he probably would have had a great story about it, but the ship has sailed. Maybe next time. Um, I guess that's why we'll just leave you wanting more. We're supposed to do that, right? I tend to, in every aspect of my life, leave people wanting more. A lot more, really, because there's a lot more to be desired. But we'll do it all again next week. Let's see how Matt Zimmer feels about the way we're closing out this episode. And a reminder, go eat at the Gateway. And if you don't want to go in, take it out. Support a great local restaurant out on West 41st Street. One of the best places to eat and watch football games and drink on NFL Sundays or on college Saturdays. Uh, Jackson and the whole crew will treat you right in however form you want to uh, uh, enjoy the gateway. I, I can just feel, I can just hear Matt Zimmer saying it right now, so I'm just going to let him say it. And goodbye. Why are you laughing? That was a terrible outro. Fuck you. <laughs> you guys need a round of drinks? Yes. Yeah.